Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rounding the Earth. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Round the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor uh, coming at you live 10 seconds early from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. How are you, Matthew? I'm great, Liam. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing super well. Bright and early, got my coffee again, started 10 seconds early. I think we're <laughs> on the right track. Yeah, I've been talking with uh, good people all day. Um, and uh, we, you know, we were just having a chat with uh, Brooke and, and Warner before getting started. And, uh, and, and I enjoy the, the energy and the attitude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's good. It's good to uh, find out that there are some things going right instead of wrong. That's right. Yeah. You tend to, I mean, news that is shocking or upsetting or bad is the stuff that sells. So I think we hear a lot of that when in reality, there's also a lot of good stuff happening behind the scenes. Yeah, so let me... is, it's also the stuff that we have to work on, right? We have, to, document it. We have to figure it out. Well, let me, you've already mentioned who our guests are. Anyone who's read the title will know who our guests are. So I'm just going to briefly introduce folks you may have heard of, Brooke Jackson, the whistleblower from Ventavia Research Group who identified critical flaws in the clinical trials for the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, COVID-19 vaccine taking place at Ventavia, um, provided an exclusive to the BMJ, which then led to a whole bunch of uh, public disclosures. Brooke has been a wonderful advocate for uh, the American people and by extension, frankly, the people of the world. Uh, I got to uh, watch as she testified at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance's citizens hearing at the end of June, which was absolutely fantastic. And joining Brooke is uh, a wonderful lawyer named Warner Mendenhall, who you can find at covidlawcast.com. I'm a new, very big fan and um, this is Mendenhall Law Group, his website. Please allow me to bring in Brooke Jackson and Warner Mendenhall. How are you guys? Hey guys, how are y'all? Yeah, just great. Thank you. So I, I hope I did okay on those introductions, but uh, let's, let's have you guys uh, fill in the blanks. Brooke, for those of you who may not be familiar in the audience of Brooke Jackson, uh, Brooke, do you wanna, do you wanna uh, like I said, fill in some of the gaps? Sure, sure. So I am a 20-year clinical research professional, and that most of that experience has been at the clinical trial site level. So where the patients are recruited to participate in clinical trials, I've been a coordinator of those studies. I have been a clinical trial manager. Um, prior to the position at Ventavia Research Group, I was a director of operations for a very similar company, and was just looking to stay at home and um, not travel as frequently. So I applied to Ventavia and was offered the position right away. 
and the rest is history, I suppose. The rest is history. Uh, Warner, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience as well? I, I'm uh, the managing attorney at Mendenhall Law Group. We're a small firm of six attorneys based in uh, Boston, Massachusetts and Ohio. Uh, we have done uh, a lot of whistleblower litigation for the last uh, 24 years under the Federal False Claims Act. And that's how Brooke and I kind of came together because of that experience in history. But beyond that, we also litigate against governments, both local, state, and federal governments for violations ranging from civil rights violations, election violations, um, all kinds of things. Uh, environmental issues in particular, that was a big case we had involving uh, a landfill where the military had dumped uh, radioactive materials here in uh, near, near Akron, Ohio. It's called the Industrial Excess Landfill. So we've been aware of local, state, and federal government abuses for years, uh, and we have done everything we can to correct them and help citizens who want to correct them. And so obviously when COVID hit, uh, we immediately saw the abuses just start to pile up essentially, and we went to work. Our very first case was a business shutdown case, and that is uh, pending at the Ohio Supreme Court right now. Fantastic. Before I let Matthew uh, get started with sort of the first line of discussion, I personally just want to thank you both because you in your individual ways and as a team have uh, you've inspired, uh, I think, millions of people in the States and probably uh, millions and millions more around the world through your your bravery. You're facing up against, like you say, government, big industry um, and seemingly without cracking a sweat. Uh, so thank you for your bravery. Thank you for everything you've done. Liam, I, just to start there. Liam I, I appreciate that, but I want to, I want to clarify it a little bit. The, the heroes are not the attorneys. I mean, we're here, we're here to help. We do a job. We're, we're the, the technical guys who try to get it done, but the heroes are definitely people like Brooke Jackson who are willing to stand up because even though I like these fights, I want to be involved in these fights. This is what I do for a living and I love it. I can't do my job without people like Brooke Jackson. So I, it's the people who are standing up, every last one of you uh, who's standing up, even kids. We've had kids stand up to mask mandates. Mm -hmm. You know, that creates the issue that we then can go and, and help, to help them out with. But without people standing up, I'm just sitting here in my office. Mm. I completely agree. I, I think that there's something heroic about every single person who right now in this era is standing up and not going along to get along, uh, willing to push back, willing to speak up. Um, but uh, some people sacrifice more than others. Um, and and with that, uh, I, I'm going to get started with some questions. Uh, I'm going to start with, uh, with Brooke. Um, so you, you've had a 20-year experience, uh, sorry, 20, 20 years of experience before before uh, what happened uh, during the pandemic, um, can you can you tell us how different things were in this particular trial from what you had seen over twenty years? And was there anything like like creep of control over the trials during that time that you could point to and say, you know, in retrospect, we were moving in the wrong direction already, or or you know, methods for for manipulating research might have been put in place or was it just like this was a completely different experience than anything that you had seen night and day i have never been involved in any clinical trial and i've, I've done some 
some high enrolling, quick enrolling clinical trials, but, but it was completely different, Matthew. Okay. Well, explain to the audience. Um, yeah. It, and it, for, for a long time, even after um, your story came out in the, uh, the BMJ in November, I think it was mm -hmm. um, early November, um, there were still for months, I actually looked through all the, the uh, video platforms and saw that you had not been given much airtime. And I'm sure that's because the mainstream media knew that, you know, get, don't even talk about this story, right? Don't, don't even let people know that this is a thing. Um, yeah. uh, walk us through the process from, from day one to this story sort of coming out. And I, and I guess really it's still coming out because it, it's only been the last couple of months that you've been given more airtime by more people. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why that is. This information that is not just my information and my story. This is everybody's story. The story belongs and needs to be shared with the entire world because this product has been forced on people around the world who believe that it's safe and that it's effective. And, you know, as, as time has kind of progressed, we're finding that it's not necessarily that or as you know um, safe and as effective as as they said it was so you know I think a lot of that's come from from time um, but as far as you know what happened in the clinical trial I was only I was only at these particular locations for 18 days and you know looking back on that 18 days the the red flags were there right away um, from the moment that I walked into the clinic, which was within a, a pavilion, a medical pavilion. So it was just an office space on a, a floor in a, in a big building of other doctors' offices. This was not one in one physician's office. It was Ventavia's space where third-party contracted principal investigators or study doctors were... Um, seeing clinical trial participants and, and not just Pfizer's clinical trial, but other clinical trials as well. We were participating in RSV studies, CEDA studies, um, you know, baby formula studies. There were so many. So the size of the clinic was, was little. I mean, we had five exam rooms. We were understaffed by, by, you know, we had four or five, sometimes uh, research coordinators where we needed 10 or 15 so that was one of the, the the major things that stood out from day one. And then, you know, when I was shadowing one of the coordinators, it was the informed consent process. So I was able to, before starting with Ventavia, look over our standard operating procedures and even some of the protocols. So informed consent and documentation of that informed consent, which are kind of those good clinical practices that we talk about, um, you know, to make sure that we were following those. And as, as I'm kind of shadowing this coordinator, getting a feel for the, the flow of the clinic, I'm recognizing that, that we're, we're not following a lot of our standard operating procedures or we're violating protocol. This is Pfizer's protocol. Um, and, and so that was really the first thing that stood out to me were, were, were those, those things. So in, in terms of the body language of the space around you, um, it, is, is it like everybody was going along to get along? Like perhaps there was, uh, you know, there, there's perhaps somebody there who's 
uh, I don't know, uh, this mission has been passed down through Operation Warp Speed, which is more like Operation Skip a whole bunch of procedures. Um, and, and, and you know, perhaps uh, this trial had been crafted in such a way that it would just, it was like, it, it, it just has to be done quickly. And everybody there. About speed. Sorry, sorry, Matthew, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It was more about speed. So there was nothing in terms of, you know, the the regulatory startup or the the protocol even that that made me pause. It was later on in those quick 18 days where I really recognized that the failures from day one through you know, week two, for example, that there was a real push from Pfizer directly to enroll as many patients and enroll them as quickly as they could. You know, when you look back to the first emergency use authorization that was given by FDA, that was on 11 December 2020. Moderna was only seven days behind. So they were they were in a race to be first to market. And, uh, you know, I have that that documented and evidenced in their emails, you know, where, where they were aware of these red flags that I was pointing out to my leadership team, other directors within the company. And, you know, it was kind of just, you know, just keep going, Brooke. We, we realize, we recognize that we, we do have things to work on. Um, just put things on a list is what I was eventually told. And Pfizer was aware and just kept pushing for more patients. Now, to be clear, it, it, you mentioned, obviously, this Ventavia wasn't working solely on the Pfizer COVID-19 mm -hmm. vaccine. Do you, do you understand other products being developed there to potentially also have a compromised clinical trial process? Or was this very specific to the Pfizer relationship? No, no. So my job as the regional director was, was mainly to oversee the day-to-day -day of the clinical trial staff and specifically to, to look at Pfizer's um, vaccine trial data mm. and, and quality, quality control and, and assure the data was, was accurate, was true, was complete, and uh, being reported appropriately. But I was also looking at other trials, uh, and, and the data looks the same, unfortunately. Mm. So let, let's go back again. Um, since you have 20 years of experience, um, trial. My understanding is that more medical trials used to take place mostly on site in hospitals and clinics where where patients were regularly being observed by more people, doctors and nurses. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen um, clinical research done in the hospital setting, and I've done. I've seen it being done in the private practice setting. But not until I would say maybe 10 years ago did it really become more um, prevalent in, for example, um, urgent care centers. You know, the, you, you have an urgent care center and, and, and the, you know, there's nothing proprietary about the, the idea or the concept of doing research in urgent care. But it was a good it was a good place to be because you see all all kinds of indications from sexually transmitted infection to influenza. Um, you know, we, we see a lot there. Um, diabetes, if there's, you know, hypertension. So there, there's an opportunity to conduct clinical trials in that setting and have many indications for that. So that's a long answer to your question. But 
but typically it was. And I would say that about 10, 10, 12 years ago, I really started to see that change. Yeah, just looking a, a back a little bit um, at, at trials from years past, going back to like the 80s and the 90s, when people would bring up, um, you know, protocol deviations and things like that, it was often doctors and nurses and hospitals. So, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I don't know if I understand the full history, but it sounds like it's become a little bit more black box and a little bit more black box with fewer and fewer observers over the years. And so when something like Operation Warp Speed comes along, um, it's just, you know, pressure on the black box with very little observation from the outside. And you become the only the only conduit is somebody like you who's courageous enough to step forward and say, this is what was going on on the inside. And we may never know, you know, what was happening at other trial sites or the extent to which, you know, um, rules were skipped, signatures were forged or anything like that. So um, and that was always my, my kind of one of my points was that if, if what I saw is happening at Ventavia, just these two clinical trial sites, uh, you know, what else is happening at these other? What are the odds you're the only one? <laughs> you know, come to find out now, you know, there's, there's, you know, we're finding more and more out. But, you know, when I look at the emergency use authorization, the FDA only inspected six of the, of the, you know, clinical trial sites in the United States. So there was 131 total within the U.S. prior to the EUA being given. They only inspected six. Now, Warner, you mentioned in our back end chat here, there, there was a, a Department of Justice effort in 2019 uh, to review clinical trial practices. Can you speak to that to give us more context? Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me because in 2019, the DOJ, uh, Department of Justice, recognized there were problems that were starting to develop in the trials and how they were being run generally. And, uh, you know, they wanted to encourage whistleblowers at that time to come forward. They were investigating these procedures by these drug companies. And then, of course, then we have Operation Warp Speed and they're nowhere to be found uh, when Brooke... Uh, basically brings her allegations forward. So, you know, it's interesting to me that one part of the government prior to this crisis knew there was a problem. And then we have these massive trials that clearly have problems based on Brooks information. So, and, and very little investigation took place. Well, it's interesting. We seem to have a pattern of, of uh, investigations or um, uh, exercises, various processes that are designed to uh, find flaws in a system and then address them, hopefully fix the problem. We had that in pandemic preparedness documentation that is now quite widely uh, known about. It seems as though you identify the problem. They say they're going to fix it. There's often money put into it or an investigation started and then nothing ever comes of it. It's very odd. It seems to repeat itself in that fashion in, in a lot of different areas. It's, it's very similar to the banking crisis. I mean, the banking crisis that, that took place, you know, had that happened a couple decades earlier, we would have had, you know, criminal, many criminal cases, maybe breaking up some banks, you know, but there was this complete regulatory capture and the banks were all of a sudden too big to fail. And I feel like that's, something maybe the the way they look at Pfizer oh it's too big to fail but uh that's or exactly now. or now and and yeah this is a really interesting comparison um I was uh on Wall Street as a bond trader in the late 1990s uh when long-term capital management failed and even before that point uh the day that I was interviewed for my first uh hedge fund trading job 
um, the senior vice president who had brought me in for an interview was walking me back to the train station and started telling me about the mortgage bond market. And essentially over, over, you know, the next few months, what I, what I essentially found out is that, um, you know, the, the smarter people on wall street already knew, and that was 1998, you know, we, uh, there were already conversations with, with, uh, Franklin Reigns and Alan Greenspan. Um, but I, I'm going to, um, I'm going to mention something to the audience that I'm going to ask you about, um, uh, Warner, um, I, I'm looking at the 20 largest uh, settlements, court settlements uh, in pharmaceutical history. Looks like um, all of them since 2003, but it really 2003 through 2013, that one decade, the 20 largest settlements are paid out. 18 of those are False Claims Act. Um, can you give us uh, a, a good encapsulation of, of the False Claims Act and why it is that that the pharmaceutical companies are bumping up against this? Like, it, it, is it like they're just not being punished enough, so they keep on doing it? It's the business model. The business model is to get your product sold, and make enough money, and then pay on the back end. And they've already made so many so much profit that that whatever they pay to the back to the taxpayer is not really going to affect their bottom line. You can you can actually uh, you, you would know how to do this, Matthew. But you can track their stock prices. Uh, you know, as related to those settlements, it really is barely a blip on the radar. In fact, sometimes the stock price goes up after the settlement because they're relieved that it had so little impact on their, uh, you know, on their bottom line. But, you know, back to your question about the Federal False Claims Act, this is just a marvelous law. Uh, it was written by Abraham Lincoln because of the uh, problems in providing the uh, Union soldiers with goods and, and services. So back then you had uh, bad blankets, you had cardboard uh, soles on shoes and boots, you had lame mules, and Lincoln got, pretty, exploded. Lincoln got pretty upset about all this, and he wrote a law. I'd love to see a picture of, the, of it because I heard he hand wrote the law and presented it to Congress. I'm not sure if that's in existence somewhere, but basically what he did is he deputized citizens to go get the bad guys. And, and we are all capable of doing that. If you're a citizen of the United States and you see a fraud against the American taxpayer, you have the right and the ability to proceed. Um, and in that process, if you're successful, and it is a very complicated process as Brooke can attest to, uh, but if you're successful, you do get a bounty at the end of that process. It's some percentage of the amount that's recovered. Um, Lincoln actually would give, uh, you know, give the whistleblowers half the money. That's no longer the case. Uh, it's a small percentage that's given to the whistleblowers, usually around 15 or 16 percent. Uh, but um, it's a complicated process. You do need an attorney to help walk you through that process. Um, Brooke's been learning about it this entire time, I know. But these cases are filed under seal, and that's to give the federal government and the investigators a chance to investigate what was going on without giving the uh, defendant a heads up about it. And uh, then the federal government itself has a, an opportunity to intervene in the case and take it over, which is what I would have hoped would have happened in Brooke's case that they would have come in and fixed this problem with all their resources and attorneys, but they didn't. But even if they don't intervene, then you still as a citizen 
have a limited right to proceed on your own. Uh, and that's what that's where Brooke is right now. She's uh, taking uh, advantage of that right to proceed on her own and fight this battle. Um, I, I say it's a limited right because the federal government does have the power to come in and ask for the case to be dismissed. So that's a possibility that's sitting out there. They haven't exercised it so far, but that's a possibility. Uh, and then the other people are letting that sink in for a second. <laughs> <laughs> the, the government can come in at any point and dismiss our case. But the uh, fact that they haven't is interesting, right? Because the like the process, even up till now, has exposed an incredible amount of uh, problematic facts that you would, I don't know, I would have anticipated they'd already have stepped in, you know, especially at the point where, correct me if I'm wrong, Pfizer's big excuse is, sure, we may have done what you're saying, but the government was in on it, so it's fine. It's, it's odd that they haven't stepped in, isn't it? Well, I mean, they only step in in about 10% of the cases, okay? So they're, uh, out of 100% of the key TAMs, or I say key TAM, that's a shorthand for me. It's for a False Claims Act case where a whistleblower is present. It's called a key TAM. Uh, and that comes from an old Latin phrase, meaning the old Latin phrase means that, that the citizen can step into the shoes of the sovereign and pursue a wrongdoer for the sovereign. And of course, the sovereign in this case are the American people. Hmm. So that's what she's doing. So in these cases, um, you know, like I said, the federal government intervenes or steps in and very, very few of them. But we really need them in a case like this. I mean, this is massive. It's the biggest case ever in the world. It's a, you know, multi possible trillion dollar case. And uh, so, so when the government steps in, that's usually on the side of the plaintiff. The government steps in on the side. We call them a relator. Uh, it's but yeah, in common parlance, you'd call it a, call them a plaintiff. But the government steps in on the side of the relator and assists in building that case. Yes. Okay. Has the government ever stepped in on the opposite side? Well, no, uh, no, they don't step in. They only have. We're bringing this on behalf of the United States taxpayer, right? So the government represents the United States taxpayer. So that's who they have the right to step in on. On the other side, what, that's where the dismissal right comes in. So if they saw something they didn't want to have go forward or thought was just ridiculous, or uh, for whatever other reason, uh, they could say dismiss the case. That's how they would step in for the other side. Is, is there precedent for that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of precedent. Okay. Now, j just to answer Christy's question here, and of course, we welcome community engagement in this process. It's, it makes it much more uh, productive and satisfying for us. So Christy has asked, is Brooks' case against Pfizer still progressing? The answer is th yes, that's what we're talking about here. And is Robert Barnes still on her legal team? As far yeah. as I know, the answer is yes, right? Yeah, Robert is lead counsel on this case. I'm, I'm, I'm secondary to Robert. He's lead counsel on the case. You know, we are performing, you know, we, we have a, a long history in the KETAM statute, False Claims Act statute. So we have uh, formed a group of attorneys that's reviewing the Pfizer brief and working on the response uh, actually this week and have been working the last several weeks. So we're trying to get input from the best uh, False Claims Act minds in the country and uh, get this response out.
and we welcome attorneys who would like to look at it. Uh, we can discuss uh, your helping out as well, because the more, you know, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, right? I want, but I do want to get the brightest guys in the world on our team and helping us out. And I do believe we have a few of those uh, working with us right now. Wonderful. I've never been so interested in you know, going to law school <laughs> than at this moment in time. I wish I could just jump in and and and, and give a hand. Um, oh, Brooke, I, I want to go back to you and ask. Um, so November, suddenly mm -hmm. this article comes out in the BMJ. Uh, did anyone in mainstream media approach you about this story at all? No. Hey. no. The only interviews that I've ever given have been in alternative, you know, alternative media, you know, these independent journalists that are the ones that are, that are telling the truth. Yeah, and two months ago, uh, we were talking in Clubhouse, or give or take two months, and and uh, it, it occurred to me that I hadn't even seen you much. And I, I literally went through all the video websites to look for your interviews, and like everything together on Rumble had about thirty thousand views, which seems just incredibly tiny for what seems like one of the largest, you know, cases in in U.S. history. Um, this would is this like the the highest amount in in computed damages or something like that i mean this, this just seems mind-bogglingly enormous um is, is there a dollar value on this you know i look at uh you know the largest settlements in history of three and 2.3 and 2.2 billion but this just seems so far beyond that is there a dollar number warner do you want me to answer that brooke sure yeah sure, sure. yes well, if, if you have a calculator handy, I haven't calculated it recently, but Pfizer has done, they have issued, uh, and it's probably more than this now, but approximately uh, 350 to 400 million shots. So it's a two-dose regimen, and they were paid, uh, you know, 19 bucks a shot initially. So those are the, those are the single damages. And then you triple that, all right? And then there are penalties, and the penalty is up to 21,000 per uh, dosing regime. So the penalty would be 21,000 times approximately 175 million. And I'm just talking about the US contract, not, not the worldwide contract. So, you know, we're looking, I'm looking at the US contract. So that number is a tremendous number. Yeah, $3.68 trillion. Oh, that's, <laughs> thanks for doing the math for me, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, that, that looks like that's about like 15% of uh, US annual GDP. Oh my yeah. goodness. Well, yeah. now, I mean, that the damage there is is tremendous. I, I, I'm just thinking now, the sheer weight of this, wouldn't that essentially cripple the US economy? If like, what will happen well, yeah, I, I know there was another interview uh, I saw with you. I believe it was on um, maybe Steve Kirsch's uh, Vaccine Safety Research mm -hmm. Foundation for a couple of weeks ago. And I saw the discussion was what will happen with the money. And and Brooke, you can speak to that if you like. Uh, wonderful ideas. And um, and 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 the the possibility of Pfizer actually having to pay out that amount. There's the positive side, which is certainly they're going to have to uh account for what what actions they've taken and be you know punished to the appropriate degree but what what happens then they they pay out they 
do are they too big to nail? Uh, does this have wider impacts on the American economy and therefore the world economy? Or am I am I thinking am I going too far down a, a intellectual rabbit hole? Well, they, they don't have that much money. Right. 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 I, I, right. This, this would simply, you know, the, the question is what, you know, you'll never get a settlement like that. But however many, mm. you know, however much money the the uh, organized pool of capital is, it would be a maximum payout. Right. Matthew, let, let me, you know, this is this is how our justice system is supposed to work, though. So the, these are the damages. And essentially what this is, it's a capital punishment for a corporation. And, you know, you see courts limiting damages all the time because they they don't want to go that far. But literally juries in the United States and the way we're set up have the power, especially under the Federal False Claims Act, to execute that corporation and end its life. <clears throat> so all of all of Pfizer's, uh, you know, were brooked to be successful, which it's a very, very long shot. I mean, I hate to say that, but it is. That's just the truth. You know, we have everything arrayed against us. You know, we have regulatory capture, so we have issues with the federal government. Pfizer has all the money in the world, except they probably don't have this much money. Um, you know, so they have everything arrayed against us. Plus, we have this, you know, uh, crazy mindset that people have. They can't see these problems that are occurring uh, due to the vaccine. So we have a lot of resistance to accepting the truth just in the general population. But regardless of all that, let's assume a perfect world. Brooks' evidence is accepted as true. Uh, we get a judgment against them for $3.68 trillion. It ends Pfizer's life. Their property is confiscated by the U.S. taxpayer. The money is returned to the treasurer, whatever they have. Their assets that are then sold off to other companies or people who want to buy those. So that's what should happen when these companies do this type of thing. This is what should have happened in the financial crisis. Going back again, we should have broken those banks up, seized their assets and redistributed, redistributed them in smaller banks. So that's the power of this law. It's incredible. And that's the power of the American jury. It's incredible. So these wrongdoers out there, you know, I look at Gates, for example, and what he's done, you know, and, and he's buying up farmland and making it fallow. And he's invested in all this crazy stuff and with the vaccines and other things. Um, you know, if we found that Gates, for example, had committed a crime in that process, maybe a racketeering or, you know, a RICO case. Uh, what would we do then if we found somebody that big had, had committed a crime? We would then try them, get a jury verdict, seize their assets and redistribute them to the American people. Because I get very concerned about this concentration of wealth. There's an old saying that at the base of all great wealth is a crime. I don't know oh, if you've heard that saying. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of keep that in mind when I look at these super wealthy individuals. What have they done to get there? What are they doing and what's the damage that they're doing? And, and then what powers do we have as a society to break them up and uh, recapture that wealth that uh, in, in many cases was stolen from the American people? Yeah, a lot of times the crimes are, are too complex uh, and they become invisible in a sense, I think, to most people, like, for instance, well, with the mortgage bond crisis, uh, I, I think not a lot of people um, ever heard the, the true story because it wasn't like right now where we suddenly had millions of people talking about it. Um, everything that you heard on TV just about was false. 
And, uh, you know, what, what really went on was the Federal Reserve gave free insurance on top of each bond. You know, you have these these bonds that would not be worth, you know, parity. Let's like a hundred dollars might be parity. Maybe the bond without that free insurance might trade for $53, but that free insurance is put on top of it and suddenly it's worth a hundred dollars. But maybe it's it's sold as quickly as possible for 60 something dollars into the market and everybody's happy. Everybody's getting a little bit of that money. But that free insurance, where did it come from? Somebody has to pay for that. Ultimately, that was when the money was printed. The money wasn't printed during quantitative easing. It was printed the moment that free insurance was tacked on. And who did that? The Federal Reserve. So really getting to the bottom of the crime would have unraveled the entire global banking system. And, yeah. and, and I, I feel like there's something like that going on here. Like perhaps underlying all this is patent medicine, which has been you know, growing for hundreds of years. Um, you know, creeping into the royal families later, the constitutional governments and, and you know, the republics and democracies that we became. And, and, and under there are all of these crimes and regulatory capture together in one mechanism that have evolved. And so, you know, really and truly what we're facing is one of these moments where um, the American people or perhaps the people of the world uh, have to watch watch what happens in the legal system. Like you said, it's a long shot, which is weird. Why would it be a long shot if it's the truth? But but that's why it's because we're butting heads with centuries of buildup of what is invisible to people unless you really, really dig down. Brooke, I'm curious to hear uh, your how how you feel about allopathic medicine in the context of what we're seeing now and how it should be how it should remain or not remain a part of our lives moving forward and we don't have to get too specific but when you're coming up against a company like pfizer i think about this a lot there's a number i've started to look closer at products i buy and you know identify not just what brand i'm buying but who owns the brand and in the case of medicine both prescription and over the counter Pfizer is a, a big name and there's other ones. Johnson and Johnson is, is sort of everywhere. Bayer, Merck. Um, but a lot of those medicines, like they're not all, it seems to me, this bad, this, this poorly evaluated. It seems there are some that truly, for example, for me, I've got hay fever. It's, it's a much smaller, you know, kind of illness, mm-hmm. but without, without reactin, that may be Johnson and Johnson, but as an example, with, without without these medicines in our in 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 our lives, they would be either uh, just more annoying to live, or potentially deadly for some folks. So there certainly right. seems to have been good done. So as you had to make a decision to go, hey, you guys, that's not on. How did you balance, or did was there a process of uh, evaluating? the impact it might have on allopathic medicine as a whole and if that's a good thing or a bad thing i don't know what do you think well i've seen some amazing things and you know over the course of of my career and even even before really but but speaking to my my 20 years of experience what i've seen go from clinical trial phase to sometimes what's now our standard of practice i've been i've been so I've been blessed to, to be a part of that. I think without clinical research, I wouldn't have my own children. 
I was in a clinical trial for assisted reproductive technologies and did in vitro fertilization. I now have my two my two children because of that. So that's a that's a tough question, uh, Liam. You know, I I I've seen good and I've seen really bad, and you know, I I, I trusted my industry and I trusted my government, and now I'm just in a place where you know. Two plus years later, I'm trying to place all those feelings of, you know, how I feel now, which is betrayed and concerned that this has happened more frequently than we even know about. Mm. And really my focus is, is you know, I, I doubt I'll ever go back to being, you know, a, a clinical researcher. I, I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my working days, but my focus right now is to just help be a voice for the vaccine injured. I have had, you know, the honor to meet some of these people and and hug them and hold their hand. And I just, I just want that to be my focus right now for, for, for people to recognize that it's not um, rare that they are out there and they're in the hundreds of thousands. And, you know, Warner, uh, you mentioned in, I think it was your talk uh, on COVID Lawcast with Charles Coves, you were talking about how you've got in your uh, community um, a, a similar situation where there are people who are vaccine injured. Um, and you've also got groups of people who differ on some fundamental concepts or believe things that are sometimes, you know, they don't necessarily always blend together uh, with other people's beliefs. But the thing that unifies people in your community is that the fact or the, the recognition that there are people who are hurt and sick and do need our help. Is, is that a unifying factor for, for sure? Like, is, 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 have you found that to be the case? I know, I know the answer is yes, because I just quoted your other show. But do you want to talk about that? Well, I, I, you know, my history is a very complex history because, you know, I, I have been a, a Democratic city councilman here in the city of Akron. That was a long time ago, 30 years ago. Um, I, uh, I've always been involved in politics, but I've always had an open mind about libertarians, Republicans, and tried to listen to what is what is being said. Uh, and I can at this point in time, I can say I'm, I'm very upset with the party that I started out with because I can't believe we have a senile uh, president uh, for one. And then the second thing was, you know, we were promised no mandates when Biden was running. And the fact that mandates came down and this extreme violation and disrespect for the individual in this country uh, just infuriates me. So, and I do see most of the Democratic politicians, not all of them, going along with that program. And I, you know, they, I cannot support someone who supports mandates, period. Uh, you know, right now it's very heartened to see Ron DeSantis stand up in Florida and what he did. Uh, I, you know, I, there, I have, I, and I want to say this too, in our cases, I mean, some of our winning cases have been judges one of them was a judge appointed by Jim, Jimmy Carter back in the 1970s, Judge mm -hmm. Walter Rice. He ruled for our case the fastest any judge has ever ruled for a case in my life. We submitted it on a Monday and we had a ruling on a Tuesday. It was done. And it was about a doctor. You know, they're going to kick him out of a residency program. So, you know, I'm, I don't want to say, 
oh, you know, the Democrats are all bad or, you know, over this issue or the Republicans are all bad on that issue. It's just not the case. So what, you know, what we need to do is coalesce around these kinds of issues and not, not focus so much on party because there, are, there have always been people I supported in the Republican Party, even when I was a full-blown Democrat. Uh, and there are some Democrats that I will support today, even though I'm really not a Democrat anymore at this point. So mm. I, there's I, something about uh, proximity. If you have to look people in the eyes, you get a different set of people in politics. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I, you know, I, and I want, when I, when I talk in public, I want people to really, you know, stay open-minded to who they're coming in contact with and not just brush people off. I had a candidate, a democratic candidate who came to see me personally uh, and Brooke knows who it is and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to name a name, but I was very surprised actually by the uh, stance of that person. They were very much in line with the civil rights and human rights that we're fighting for. And, um, you know, that's the type of Democrat I would support. And that's the type of Republican that I would support. So, you know, that's that's what we need to do is come around, you know, come together around issues and get these fights done uh, and and, uh, you know, build a community that's willing to have a debate mm-hmm. and willing to have a discussion. Well, and, and a reminder to folks, it was. President Donald Trump, who oversaw the creation of Operation Warp Speed and who still to this day is a a fierce advocate for specifically these products that are causing so much harm. So it's a reminder that this really is this went from the administration of one party to the administration of the next and it just carried on. So I think you're right that we have to look past political affiliation um, and also unify around the things we do agree on. Uh, I as wanna, opposed to focusing on the things we don't. One of the things that's curious to me about that, and I, I you know, obviously I, I was disappointed about Trump's backing of Warp Speed and what he was doing there. And, and I'm still disappointed today, the fact that he does seem to promote the vaccine still. But, you know, one thing that I wonder about, you know, this is, you know, there is a deep state. It's the it's the bureaucracy that's there from administration to administration. And I think what we're viewing and seeing to a large extent is the inertia of the deep state. Their ongoing programs don't end regardless of what president is in power. You know, across Democrat, Republican, it just keeps moving. So we as a people need to understand that and we need to disrupt that process. And Trump in particular had you know, a lot of resistance to any change of that program. And he was only partially successful in reversing it in some very particular areas. So this deep state idea is just the bureaucracy that we have in place, all these administrative agencies, these millions of employees, you know, who are pursuing an agenda completely separate from the American people. And deep state sounds um, shadowy and overly conspiratorial to the ear, I think a lot of times, but I think that that, uh, that a lot of what people should understand about that is essentially you have this constitutional government, but another government grew within it, uh, whether it was embedded there, whether it was fostered, whether um, whether it was, uh, 
you know, just what happens when self-interested people are willing to, um, you know, go behind the back door of, of the system. Um, but whatever it is, it grew and it grew and it, it, it feels like it has more control than the original constitutional government. And I think that, that somewhere in there, whether or not there are string pullers, whether or not it is just uh, path dependence, um, that that's the battle and that's why it is that, uh, uh, that's why it is that this feels like essentially a war and it will probably continue to feel like a war to the American people. Well, and, and, and not just the American people, uh, I got to tell you, I have a, uh, human rights, uh, complaint, um, in, in process against a, a federal agency up here in Canada. Uh, and I, w I won't name which one, but in one of their replies to me, they essentially said, we as an administrative body uh, have been given specific deference to make executive decisions. And in this context, they were saying to violate this particular human right. And um, it, it rung so true to what you just said. Like they basically invoked their deep state privilege in their official argument and i found that to be very uh forthcoming actually uh but it's it's not just the united states the problem is the united states you know i i've now learned that up here we have health canada and health canada largely defers to the u.s food and drug administration and i understand that to be the case for most of the world you've got the european medicines agency as well um that i, I think does have some clout um but for the large part the u.s leads on I think almost every front, uh, entertainment, banking, uh, it's, I mean, still the world currency, uh, reserve currency. So the U.S. is certainly, I've come to learn, I love America uh, because it represents more than just the confines, you know, within <clears throat> borders of a, of a nation, you know, with, with armed guards at it. It's, it's an idea. And I've, I've, that's something I'm very thankful for, is I now understand you know, why the Constitution is so important and why people so ferociously protect the First Amendment, Second Amendment, all of the amendments, frankly. Uh, I, I'm fascinated to continue learning about what 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 led to America being, you know, going from uh, essentially a, a colony fighting their way out of that status and becoming the beacon of, of hope for the entire planet. And, and it needs to be now again. <laughs> and, and Brooke, and, and in a sense, um, you know, what Brooke was saying uh, before about, uh, it, it, she was pointing out the good that our medical system has done. And this wraps back around to that because, you know, part of what's powerful about the deep state is that it can take control of a system that has produced so much good, yeah. right? There is so much good that has been done in the medical system. Uh, you know, if, if I'm in an emergency, an American ER is a pretty good place to go. Uh, one of the reasons why America didn't fall as far behind, we, we've made a lot of mistakes in our medical system, but we didn't fall, fall behind in terms of life expectancy. When you tease out the demographics overall, when you combine it together, we're, we look lower than we are, but it's because we have more of certain demographics that, that drag the average down. But the reason we, we kept parity for a long time was because of heart care, emergency heart care. We have defibrillators like everywhere. You know, you, you, there's probably one under your couch that you don't know about. But, but you know, seriously, uh, you know, the American ER just became an amazing uh, instrument for saving lives. The fact that that the darker side of medicine 
can hide behind all of that, right? It's, it's humanitarian shielding. Do we tear it all down, right? If, if they have control, if they are wound up in all of it, then essentially they're saying tear us down and you tear it down. Kind of like the way Anthony Fauci says, you know, you attack me, you attack science. That, that feels like what they're doing is standing behind the good. Well, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm gonna be simplistic here in, in the response to that, Matthew, but I mean, right off the bat, we have some obvious things. No one who works for the federal government like Anthony Fauci should be tied to the profits of any uh, medicine. The federal government, if it's done the research and has the patents, should hold those patents jealously for the American people and issue licensing for these companies to work on it. But that's, you know, we changed this whole system under Reagan and, and that all needs to be reversed. That's part of what went wrong with the FDA and with our, our federal health uh, administrations. So we've got to get private money out of it completely. It needs to be just taxpayer funded and, and American people need to own their own patents. So, you know, just on the health side, I would start there. And Liam, our country began on belief. And that's why the First Amendment is so important. And our courts have recognized that belief is far more than just religion, that, that belief itself is acceptable and that behaviors based on belief are to be protected. And that's why belief itself is saving our country in the courts of law right now, yeah. uh, whether it's a purely, you know, or a more traditional religious belief or some other kind of belief, belief is what's protected here in the first amendment. And that's, the, you know, it's how belief will save the world. Belief's gonna save the United States first and beliefs and behaviors and that they're allowed to be consistent as long as you're not harming others that's that's what's saving us right now and that's the one at the probably the core kernel of this remember people fled uh europe for religious persecution so that's why that's that kernel of our country now i'm very curious because uh when we were on uh clubhouse together matthew and brooke uh we you you uh sympathized on a, an issue which was feeling as though you've got this very important set of facts you've come across this discovery that has an impact on the entirety of the nation and and the world yet no one seems to be interested in in listening or understanding and luckily brooke that that has changed now i would say um matthew uh i i don't want to speak for matthew and i'll i'll, I'll let him decide whether he wants to go further with this um, but do, do you want to talk about, Brooke, um, when, what, what, what did it feel like when you weren't being heard? And how did you go from that to then all of a sudden being taken seriously? Like, when did it feel like people actually grasped not just the facts, but what it means? <clears throat> I still feel, you know, I, I spoke to... Um, a Texas representative today that had no idea about this, this story. He's my neighbor. His parents are my neighbor. And he had no idea. I spoke to him for about an hour. So that's why I was rushing around thinking I was late today. Um, and I beat you guys to your own show. Mm. But, you know, how I feel, I, I think I think I've been dismissed because 
of the of the amount of clinical trial patients that were enrolled from these Ventavia clinical trial sites. You know, when you look at the 44,000 that were enrolled at, at, you know, all of the 153 sites, uh, you know, globally, and, and compare that to the 1,000 that were enrolled at these two clinical trials at Ventavia, people think, well, what's, what's 1,000? What does 1,000 matter? They're just 1,000 of the 44. So I, I think that's a huge reason why this, this information hasn't kind of, you know, um, made more headway. I mean, what do you guys think? You know, when you look at the, when you look at the sample size, and this is what, what I'm not very good at, you know, helping the lay person. And I don't mean that in any, um, you know, in any way other than, you know, clinical trials are complicated. <clears throat> you know, I'm not a biostatistician, but when you take the sample size and, and what, what Pfizer based their efficacy on was a, a very small group of, of or small number of people. And that was, I believe, was it 170? And 162 of those in the placebo arm and eight in the vaccine arm. And, you know, when you take a thousand patients whose data has been manipulated, falsified, the, the trial was unblinded, the physicians knew what drug assignment they were on, it doesn't take very many of those 1,000 patients to to drop that efficacy potentially down to zero. Yeah, and a lot of people may not know this, but there were um, you know, hundreds of people, uh, extra people excluded in the treatment arm than in the placebo arm. It was around like 360 to 60 or something like that. It overwhelms the effect size. It could be completely engineered and your story is consistent with the engineering um, it doesn't prove it, but it is consistent with the engineering of efficacy. And, and I personally think there are other pieces that are consistent with it. I, I just, um, and, and I've looked at the international data, I believe there's zero efficacy. I think that they, um, that they knew they didn't have a product yet yeah. and that they, um, they designed it. Um, well, this I, wasn't, you know, just to, just to add on there, Matthew, this wasn't anything that I had to prove. This Pfizer proved it. Their own documentation proved it. Ventavia proved it. You know, this isn't, again, this isn't my story. I'm just kind of like narrating their own documentation, what I saw, you know, the, the, the just um, few pictures that I took, the recordings that I made of uh, the intimidation that I was feeling. But this is internal company documents that, that I brought forward. So that's, that's the proof. It, it's nothing I had to prove. And just to point out, you 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 blew the whistle on a facility or on a research group that was one mm -hmm. of many facilities participating in this trial. So, you know, you just laid out great and you can make an argument that even within just that small sample size of a thousand, there was significant <laughs> issues. That's a problem. But to help people understand, it may be as simple as saying that's just one of the sites. How many other sites have the same problems and we just don't have a whistleblower yet or there wasn't the opportunity to document this? If it happened at one, it almost definitely happened at at least one more. Um, Which is where the, you know, the FDA <laughs> comes in. It's their responsibility, their oversight. They inspected, I, again, I think we talked about this earlier, six prior to the emergency use authorization. They found We'll never know if those had advanced warning. We'll never know if those are you know, truly representative of checking against what you observed. Right, right. You know what, there was no action that was indicated in any of those audits, but you know, what did they audit? Was it just regulatory? Was it clinical trial data? You know, were those sites 
um, allowing on-site visits? Was this done remotely? There's there's so many questions that come come to my mind, and we'll we'll never have the answers. But you know, uh, regulatory that that's just one thing that I think needs to be changed right away. You know, the the way that the clinical trial data is reviewed by the FDA. Is, is huge. And, you know, the, the BMJ has been calling for this for a long time, specifically Peter Doshi, that individual clinical trial data, the FDA never sees. That stays at the clinical trial site. They never see it. They see the finalized data that's presented to them by the, by the pharma company. So going back for a moment, you mentioned your neighbor had not even heard about your story yet. No. Uh, and, you know, for a number of years, uh, a lot of a lot of watchdogs have pointed out, hey, look, our media is amazingly centralized and, and this is going to be a problem at some point. Uh, I'm not sure if we had anything that we could do about it. Um, the marriages between that and the government and between the pharmaceutical industry, all of them, um, it, it's pretty tight. During the pandemic, and I can't remember what the name of this bill was. I don't know if, uh, if Warner or Liam if, if, or Brooke, if you remember, um, there was a billion dollars in a bill for the media. And essentially, it just looks like, you know, hey, here's a billion dollars, play propaganda machine. Oh, I remember that. And, I think I wrote it down somewhere. And a billion dollars is enough to get a lot of people to ignore Brooke Jackson. So, you know, I think the surprise is that you feel that the weight of this story is large, that anything that happened to you that was, you know, a hundredth as large as this would probably have been news to your neighbors. On the other hand- It wasn't just a neighbor. This was a representative in the house. I have written to his office. I've written to every single one of my elected official officials and have only ever been contacted by my county judge who invited me to his office and wanted to, to hear the story. And I, I spent a couple hours there and, and gave that information to him, but nobody else. Well, this is I, the power of mass media is, is one lever. And so many people either know about it or don't know anything at all about it. And, and that, that should wake people up as to where we are in this course of civilization. And I think that we're going to need a whole lot more, people having discussions, people with, you know, uh, sharing stories like this with a few thousand people at a time to the point that people know the stories that matter the most are not what is on their TV. And it's been that way for longer than people think, um, you know, more, you know, and you, it was that way for me. It was that way for me. I was captured. Yeah. And, and do you wonder how many gigantic stories you never heard about? I can tell you a few of them. <laughs> Go ahead. What's your one? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do want to, I really could tell you a few of them, but I don't want to do it right here. But I mean, one of the things that we have seen literally in our litigation, we've had tremendously successful cases that will not get covered because the medical establishment that's advertising on our local TV or a pharma company, they will not buck their advertisers. They will not put the story on air. So, yeah, I mean, I have a number of those personally. I know of hundreds of those uh, professionally. And, uh, you know, you just see it at work. I mean, we had a lawsuit. I'll give you one quick example. We had a successful lawsuit against Cleveland Clinic. When that settlement came out, they had snaked us uh, in the street meaning of that. They had snaked us on the story. 
the seal wasn't even lifted yet. There was already a press release out to the newspapers and they blocked everything from going out on the television programs locally. It was a, one of the largest settlements, probably the largest settlement in the last 20 years in the city of Akron. So it was 20, 21 million plus settlement. And it got very much buried and very much spun wherever it came out. So that's just a direct recent example from last year. And there are just hundreds of stories, but we definitely see the active suppression of information. I'll give you another quick example, just as because it's top of my mind. We settled a case with University of Phoenix. University of Phoenix saw that story, hit the internet, bounced to the top when people would do their search, and they immediately spent on advertising to push us down. So that story was no longer popping up when people searched University of Phoenix. So, I mean, we watched that in real time happening. I'm like, oh my God, I mean, I just don't have the capacity uh, to counteract that here. And, and, you know, but I'm learning as I go what they're doing. So uh, Brooke's story will be being suppressed by Pfizer advertising and other things as well as whatever Google and Facebook and all them are doing. So it's very, very direct. Corporations know how to protect their reputations. Then they spend a lot of money doing it and they know how to hide whistleblowers like Brooke. Well, I want to I ask you about the FDA because um, Robert Barnes uh, has basically, he's explained it, that it, it was designed to be a labeling agency to make sure that pharma, that that uh, that companies weren't s simply lying on the label about what they were selling. And it's evolved into now an enforcement body that is uh, involved in sanctioning doctors who have done nothing wrong. Um, and I want to ask your opinion on that, but I want to share a couple of things to use this as an educational moment. Um, this is Pfizer's Wikipedia page. This is a list it's under this euphemistic title, public-private engagement. This is a non-exhaustive list of the companies and institutions categorized, academia, activism, summits they've hosted, media. <clears throat> and just to give some examples, they hosted the 2022 Oscar ceremony. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, they're, a, they're a donor to the National Geographic Society, uh, the University of Toronto, University of Washington, they hosted um, the royal wedding. They did what? You didn't know that? R no, run that by me again. <laughs> the royal wedding. Oh my goodness. Brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> you so, know, so uh, Americans may not know this, but in most countries, there is no pharmaceutical advertising. It's just illegal. It doesn't show up on the televisions. Uh, it may not show up in the newspapers at all. Mm -hmm. And but here we're inundated by it. Uh, I, I believe uh, that what I've read is that the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. spends a greater proportion of its gross product on advertising and public relations than any other. And it's not just public relations, it's the regulatory bodies themselves, it would appear. That now the FDA, I'm sure, would tell you, no, they don't. They, I mean, so here's the other thing is, in fact, they make money off of user fees, I believe they're called, where some 45% of their budget in 2021, for example, was <laughs> pharmaceutical companies paying these user fees to the FDA, which is basically then paying them to evaluate their product. But there's, it goes beyond that. This is something that I think very few people know. There are at least two foundations, technically independent of the FDA, who, in their own description, uh, this this is one Alliance for a Stronger FDA. 
FDA on the logo is nice and big. And the, 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 indivi- the, the list of people who fund this operation include all of the pharmaceutical companies, Amgen, Johnson & Johnson, Eli Lilly. This is Campfire Wiki. I'll put the link in the description there. So Alliance for a Stronger FDA. And the other one is the Reagan Udall Foundation for the Food and Drug Administration. This one is a government-administered foundation. So this is one branch of government that was set up to receive funding to support the activities of the Food and Drug Administration. To me, this just seems like laundering funding. Um, Perhaps that's too um, uh, cynical of me. So my question is, do we even need the FDA? Warner. Well, (laughs) (laughs) we, we, we we need a true regulatory body uh, because I, I mean, you have to have, uh, you know, you have to have checks on quality. Uh, you have to have some oversight of safety. Uh, the labeling is important. So we understand what you're taking, what's in it. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking about the GlaxoSmithKline case out of Puerto Rico, where the factory was issuing drugs that were at all kinds of different doses. They weren't, they weren't the standard dose. Uh, there were so many flaws in the manufacturing process, and they paid a huge uh, fine on on that case. I happen to know that whistleblower, Cheryl Eckerd. Um, but, you know, so I think you do need the FDA, but we need to have an effective FDA. And, and like I said, we have some fixes here. Let's end pharmaceutical uh, advertising. Let's end any private money in the FDA. Let's make sure it's working for the public. And all of that could be fixed by Congress tomorrow, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Congress could come right in and do it if they had the, the will. Uh, of course, unfortunately, Congress has captured itself. So we've got to look at that issue. And, and, and in that sense, then that gets you into elections and, you know, various ways to structure the vote and all that. But all of it needs to be looked at. And I guess the good news in the midst of this crisis is we are looking at it. All of us are waking up to how damaging it has been. I mean, this these agency and the FDA with what it's allowed to be released on the market is killing people at this point. So it's become really, you know, uh, Ed Dowd calls it democide. I heard him talking about democide. So where your government is literally uh, damaging its own population. I mean, I think, unfortunately, we're at that point right now. And, and Food and Drug Administration, let's look at it in broader context as well. You know, what about all the uh, stuff that's going into our foods, the, the coloring, the preservatives, all of that stuff? I mean, we need to look at it in a very holistic way. You were talking, Liam, about, um, you know, health issues. But, you know, if you, if you make sure our food supply is clean and good and, and healthy, and don't allow all these additives. Thousands of additives are being allowed to, on the foods, which we don't know what some of the outcomes are on that. So it's food and drug administration. We need to clean up our food. We need to clean up our drugs and we need to clean up our agency. If I could jump in, I, I'm going to debate a point with you. Um, so you said, you know, we, we need a, a strong FDA. Um, the point that I would want to make is uh, the FDA serves all these different functions. And I think part of what's gone wrong is that some of these functions are private functions and some of them are public. And the taking of them and you know building together this, this machine that is part of the deep state and essentially, you know, it's hard to even get at it to dismantle it as part of the problem. I think that there are a lot of functions of the FDA that could be privatized. I think that um, you know, possibly quality testing, uh, you could have uh, different 
you know, private companies that uh, they depend on the public trust. So they want to get it right when they go do it. Uh, I think that there are pieces of that, that that perhaps we should privatize. But the more we take those pieces of power away from the same core, the less they can be used together to create that kind of humanitarian shielding that is like that that insidious relationship where where the people who are doing things that are wrong can stand behind the fact that medicine has done so much good. So I, I, I'd, I'd want to put that out there. You know, some some things should be subsidiary to the local process that we can choose. And uh, and there's there's some aspect of justice um, that that is part of what you know a nation is a body of laws. You know, those debates are going to go on endlessly. Um, but, you know, and I, I don't disagree with you, but I mean, let's understand what happens in the private sector too. bribes are paid, kickbacks are paid and people are corrupted there very easily as well. That's happening. We see that happening every single day. So I, there is certainly we've got problems in the public sphere, but we also have problems with the private sphere and we need to be aware of that. You think Pfizer couldn't uh, influence a small company that was its testing company or was doing its testing one way or another? Of course they can. So we, we need to balance that. We need to have discussions about that. And one of the things that's critical is simply openness. Show us everything all the time. We're citizens of this country. It's our country. These are our documents. Let us see it. And that's, that's really key as well, which the deep state and the uh, national security state have avoided. Uh, they've blocked uh, us from seeing our own records, our own budgets, um, you know, all kinds of things. So openness is key to everything. Sunshine, right, is the best disinfectant. So let's whatever process it is, if it's open, I'm going to respect it more. I get your point about privacy, you know, private entities, but I see problems on all sides of this, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, corruption can happen anywhere. I, I, I yeah, I, I think in this case, you know, where where it is that the power is coming from is coming from the highest places. Um, you know, everything seems to be working together in the machinery behind the veil of government. And now what we have are you know, I'm not even sure if we can separate the pharmaceutical companies from the FDA or from from the government as a whole at this point. It, it feels like such a, a tight marriage um, that that you know we we don't even know what we're fighting. Um, on the flip side, and part of the reason that um, that I was talking to to Brooke two months ago is there was a similarity in our experience where I went in and and helped the investigation with the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database, and uh, and. You know the whistleblowers and uh, and and Thomas Rents, you know, who I'd originally worked with, seemed to have not really done much to explain that my findings were different than what they originally published. And you know what what they originally talked about it, it's it's clearly false because the the numbers that they said were from 2016 to 2020. Um, you know the published snapshots of the database are far higher than their numbers, so we know. That, that that was missing data. We know that there was something like a glitch. I think that the, that the DOD was entirely honest about there being a glitch, but that mm -hmm. there's a much deeper problem, which is that the, that the uh, prior data had been altered without explanation before that point, right? And and when, when you get to this level of depth of who is controlling things, um, then, you know, we reach a point in the process where where centralization of power is the the crux of the issue. It feels like like 
um, you know, w when you say, um, you know, that it's a long shot case, you know, that entire gauntlet that's set up against you, um, it, it, it feels like that entire gauntlet is the deep state. And it feels like it's almost everywhere. Yeah, it's a it's a long shot case. Uh, it's interesting because when I first started doing False Claims Act, there were different standards in the courts for these cases. So they have the courts have literally overlaid uh, ruling after ruling after ruling to make it more and more difficult through the years to bring <laughs> in case uh, under the Federal False Claims Act. So we're dealing with you know issues of particularity materiality, you know, those are arguments we're, we're dealing with instead of just, you know, what rule eight is in the law. I don't mean to get too technical, but it's a simple statement of the facts that will put the defendant on notice as to what they're facing. We need to be under that standard, not particularity and materiality standards, because clearly Brooke, you know, sufficiently informed Pfizer as to what she was claiming, and we ought to be allowed to litigate that. But those standards as well could be changed by Congress tomorrow and make the litigation uh, of these types of cases much easier than they are uh, because they've become exceedingly difficult. And hers is uh, at a whole other level. <laughs> Matthew, can you do me a favor? Because I, I, I've watched as, as you've tried to uh, tell the world what they're missing in the in the DMED story. And I want to really make sure we don't miss an opportunity to do that here. Can you one more time explain what the discrepancy is between what individuals who are uh, working on th this case, you know, referencing yeah, the DMED compared to what's the difference between what we've heard as the public so far and what you've found and are trying to clarify to people. Uh, this, is, this is tough. I don't want to take up too much of our time and it's difficult to do without me pulling out my slide deck and, and showing the graphs. But, but basically, um, I mean, it, it looks like, uh, it looks like the, the 2016 through 2020 data that you would have been comparing 2021 with looks to have been manipulated uh, in such a way that would have hidden safety signals. It would have raised up the past numbers to make the 2021 numbers look not quite so bad. And in particular, in one place called the R codes, which are where the doctor doesn't know what causes the illness. Those exploded in 2021. And But then there was a database migration, which I think was hide the addition of new records, the re-indexing of the database. I believe that there was a glitch intentionally or otherwise, the whistleblowers queried the numbers, compared them and said, hey, we have thousand percent increases in injury and illness. But when you look at the denominator, the 2016 through 2020 numbers, those were clearly not the correct numbers. You could look at the medical surveillance monthly reports that the military publishes at health.mil and see that they were a fraction of the correct number. So there was something like a glitch that kept those queries from being correct. So the numbers that, that were presented at the Johnson hearing were incorrect. But after my findings, it seems like there are a whole bunch of people who are not interested in backing down from that original story. And that worries me a great deal, right? It, it worries me because we need to be getting to the bottom of this. And I feel I worry that there are a number of pieces like that going on during the entire pandemic where, you know, possibly embedded, you know, we, we know how powerful these levers of media are. We know that that you know Brooke's story is just now starting to blossom in terms of more people hearing it and understanding it. 
Um, yeah, you know, there were very few interviews and not by big names previously. And, you know, Brooke, I don't know if you've been interviewed by, um, by, you know, I, I saw you on with Steve Kirsch. Um, mm -hmm. That's the largest one that I've seen. Um, and Steve Kirsch has a large audience, but certainly not, nothing like, you know, NBC News would get out. But, you know, right now I'm being, you know, my findings are being drowned out. I just saw a tweet that was uh, shown to me that had 5,000 likes and, and thousands of retweets. That was the old story from six that I found out was wrong six months ago, mm -hmm. you know, being tweeted out by a, a MAGA Patriot account. Mm -hmm. and, and that, that, that sends chills down my spine, right? Like that's, that's what we're fighting against. And I think that, that a similar mechanism was probably behind, shh, don't talk about Brooke. I think even from a lot of people who are presumably on our side, wanting to look into all this and it, it bothers me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to do what I can with any audience that we have. And hopefully, you know, that spreads and that spreads and that spreads. Right. Um, but to have you on and, and, you know, to let people know uh, of the fraud that you saw um, or, or what sounds like fraud to me, I guess it's going to be an argument in court, but the, the alleged fraud, <laughs> if we'll call it that in, in the, the trials, um, it, it, you know, the, the, the media levers are powerful and overly centralized and it's difficult. So I appreciate what the two of you are doing. And I was so glad to hear before we started talking, we're going to share this with the audience now because we talked about so many bad things, but, uh, but Warner brought up that we are having victories all over the place and I'm not hearing enough about those. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it back to the two of you and, and, and perhaps uh, let you guys share a little of the good news. Just before you guys do that, though, because we're on the topic of interviews and such, I want to give a huge shout out to um, the last American Vagabond, who, as far as I understand, was the first uh, mm -hmm. platform or the first organization to interview you. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It, uh, that was my first interview. And still, every time I hear the, you know, the beep or the recording in session, I get super nervous. I don't do well at these interviews. But Ryan Christensen at The Last American Vagabond was was my first interview. Um, I actually just did another one where where he was a, a co a co guest. Oh, wonderful! Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go on mute and let Warner talk because my phone's ringing. Sorry. Sounds great. <laughs> so Warner, victories. What are some of these uh, victories? Presumably in the in the 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 court of law you're referring to. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of things I think people don't understand about litigation. But I mean, you guys are sensing it even with Brooks litigation. It whether we win or lose, we are communicating a message. We are bringing the change. You know, it may not be a change that happens in court, but it's a change because it's given her a platform to discuss this, to reveal what's happened, and for people to make up their minds. So even a, a possibly losing case or a long shot case that maybe we lose, I don't know, but. If even if we lose it, she has done so much good for the world just by bringing the case and bringing the fight. Um, but let's talk about victories. Um, you know, there have been there are just thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of small victories around this country. Uh, currently, there are 16,000 roughly cases filed on COVID matters all over the country. Attorneys are fighting, you know, all over the place. My groups of attorneys right now, I think I'm in touch with about 500 attorneys that are actively litigating. 
you know, we are sharing everything we can with each other to help each other be successful. You've seen the federal courts knock out two of the federal mandates, just knock them out. You know, that's a huge success, right? You know, let's remember these successes. Within our own firm, we've done literally hundreds of actions, you know, whether it's a letter, an unemployment hearing, a workers' comp situation, a lawsuit against a school, Brooks case. And, and we have seen school districts just collapse when they're faced with resistance from parents that lawyer up, parents that don't lawyer up, parents that protest. You know, and in Ohio, half the school districts did not institute mask mandates. And, and I will send you that uh, chart. I, I did. I did have somebody send that while we were on the uh, while we were here. I can share it with you if you want to see that. Actually, yeah. yeah if you have right. it available, it can I be do. pulled right up. I'm gonna. I'm gonna see if I can. Uh, let's see. How, how do I share? I'm hitting share. Share screen. Yeah, I want to show you this. Uh, share screen. Okay, look at this chart. Is it coming up? Oh, it did momentarily. Do single uh, click on it. Okay. Yeah. Did, it, did it come up? No. I got it. What do I have to do here? Something's going on. But yeah, I, you know, at the bottom of the studio, bottom middle is a share button on that six button panel. Yeah, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to run that. Yeah, I, and it's just not grabbing it. But is there is it online? Is it a link that you could copy and paste into our chat here? No. No, it isn't. I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay. We can share that for the audience after the fact, not to worry. But the point <laughs> is, it's there. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. Um, but what I want to say is everyone is standing up. I mean, there's so much success. We had a, you know, one uh, case was in, in federal court with a Jimmy Carter appointed judge, like I said, who, who from one day to the next ruled for our doctor who was getting kicked out of his residency program. So, you know, the federal employer mandates that were stopped in Kentucky really influenced uh, our cases here in Ohio. So there are successes that are happening all the time, even down to criminal cases. We defended criminally a mother who took her kid to school in violation of a bogus quarantine order. She was charged criminally. The judge threw that threw that case out within a couple of hearings. So, you know, the, the wins are tremendous. The judges that are out there are tremendous. I've got to give props to Trump and the Trump judges because they've been tremendous. Um, and, you know, we have a case right now that we lost uh, at, the, at the lower level court, at the appellate court, that's now at the Supreme Court. And you may think this is a little case. It's a bar that got shut down by liquor control over a health order in Ohio. Our argument is real simple. Liquor control doesn't have the power to shut down a bar over a health order. If the health department wants to come in, that's one thing, but liquor control can't come in. So let's keep people in line, so to speak. Let's keep our agencies doing what they're supposed to do, not some you know, going off on some frolic of their own. Um, same thing with schools in Ohio, for example. Schools don't have health department enforcement capacity. They do have to take care of the kids. They're in loco parentis, right? but they cannot order a quarantine. Only a health department can do that. Let's remember the basic uh, roles that people are playing. And we've had schools in Ohio ordering quarantines. So, you know, we are winning a lot of these cases. We've seen tremendous success. You've seen the, the uh, executive orders get knocked down by the Supreme Court and by the federal courts. You know, I think people need to be very heartened. Our, our federal courts are operating 
in a very independent way. They're playing their Article uh, Three role. Uh, they they are exerting their power into the system, and it's helping all of us. So, you know, like I said, <laughs> I, a lot of success. I hope that answers your question a little bit. I may try to share this screen again, just because. Um, yeah, yeah, you go ahead and try that. And I, I wanted to ask Brooke, because uh, we're, we're coming up on the last couple minutes here. And um, Viva and Barnes, Viva Barnes Law, .locos.com, free plug. Um, they talk about the white pill. You know, through all these hard times, uh, it is very difficult sometimes, uh, especially as we're coming into a darker season. Everyone's a little more just generally blue it becomes challenging to stay motivated, to stay positive sometimes. So Brooke, as someone in such a stressful position, who's had to face so much adversity, stand up against Goliath, what's your white pill now? What keeps you excited? What keeps you motivated? What keeps you, uh, what keeps you going? Sorry, I got kicked out of my hotel room. So I'm in the little, um, the little vending area. Oh my goodness. Um, what keeps me motivated? I think, I think I'm hopeful. I, I run on that these days. Again, it's just my mission. No matter what happens, we're bringing more attention to people that have been injured by this vaccine, and that that's really, you know, that that's really been my focus, guys. And what's going to remain my focus is is just giving those voices back to the, the people that have been hurt by this vaccine. And that, that's where I'm at. Yeah, there's the white pill right there. Most people are still good people. And, uh, you know, one of the important things to understand, uh, you know, when we when we go to the flyover states, those are good people. When those people come and meet uh, Warner in the city, he's good people. Right. And, yeah. and and that's it's part of the reason why it's important for us to talk and, and turn off the TV, turn off the mass, you know, um, DDoS, uh, you know, uh, throw information in your face, the same information for everyone that can be programmed in the same way. Uh, and social media is not the antidote to that. It's still the same type. It's even worse. It's insidious programming because you don't think it's programming. Um, but, you know, uh, have conversations, uh, you know, bring people together. Most people are still good people, no matter how many problems have built up in the system. We've got the chart here. Walk us through this to wrap us up, Warner. What are we looking at? Well, you can see that it's mixed results, okay? So basically what you can see on the left side, that's the lowest COVID rates. Those are the no masks or, or optional masks uh, areas, way at the low end. At the high end, you know, you've got the mandatory masks. And then in the middle, you have a mix. So, you know, it's... I would say that in general, this thing skews to no masks are better, but at the very uh, worst, masks make no difference at all. So why did we go through that? Why did we damage our children's psyche uh, over this? And why did we disrupt education over this? I don't know. Uh, so that's the chart. You know, I, I think um, I want to address that last question that Brooke answered a little bit. I am thrilled with everything that's happening, because we really needed to refresh our country, uh, get it refounded on the core values that uh, that we believe in, to use that word again, and uh, and to clean up what's been happening slowly. Like I said, I've been doing this a long time, so I saw the slow deterioration, which would continue unless something woke people up. 
this is awakened enough people that I think we can maybe do something about it. And I'll tell you what, the, the, the people that I'm dealing with, I mean, the people who have crossed the Rubicon and are in this fight, you know, they've qualified themselves to lead. We know, we know who's a leader. We know who's thinking about this. We know who can resist corruption and bribery because they're in the fight. You know, look at these doctors who've given up their careers over this fight. You know, those are that we know to trust them. They can't be bought. Who do I want to be the next, uh, you know, Surgeon General? You know, Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, Paul Merrick, any one of them, they'd be great. Uh, you know, so we know who our leaders are in a sense that they've crossed the Rubicon. We know we can trust them. We know they're not corrupt. And then the, the, the sheer networking that's going on, uh, I can tell you the wonderful attorneys that I'm meeting and our ability to, you know, even though I'm a little slow at the tech, but our ability to share information and support each other has just phenomenal. And that's going to lead to better law, better litigation, uh, you know, for all of us going forward. Um, so I'm, I'm very positive about the outcome. I'm very upset and sad about what I believe are going to be all the deaths and illnesses and injuries that have occurred. I mean, I can't, you know, but, but I, you know, the positive side, uh, does hearten me and Brooke and I are meeting injured people all the time. And, and I am just, I feel like as a society, and this crosses party lines too, because we addressed a mainly Republican audience over it, uh, as a society, I think people will help those who are injured by this terrible mistake. And it's a lot of people. It's, it's millions of people, unfortunately. Yeah, and for anybody watching who's never heard this, you go back 160 years in American history, or maybe, maybe just a little further, right before the Civil War, 70% of American households ran a business. Uh, that, is, that is closer to the ordinary state of what happens when you leave people alone, largely, when you're not... Uh, when, when the regulatory system hasn't grown into a deep state, when it's not, uh, when the uh, uh, when the balls of problems have not rolled too big to push around, um, you, know, you know, when people have the ability to network without interference, uh, I think that a lot of small businesses have been blown up. I think that there's going to be a lot that's going to be rebuilt and reinvented in that reinvention process. Um, has the possibility to do what uh, what was done with uh, America in the 1800s, which is you had more inventive people in one place than perhaps ever before, and that's why it became the greatest economy in the world. Um, and, and, and Brooke, you know, we we didn't go into the nitty gritty details of your story. I figure, you know, you've probably done that a few times already. Uh, when I post this in an in an article, I'm going to link to places where you've you've gone into more of the details, so that as many people who want to go through that can see it, who who want to go through and see perhaps what the 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 story is on a technical level. Um, but uh, thank you for talking with us today about all of it in the big picture. And, uh, and thank you, Warner, for, for showing up and, and, and helping us understand the legal side. I do what I can. Thanks. <laughs> He's so funny. Sorry for the bouncy camera. I got kicked out of my room and I'm holding my laptop. So thank you guys very much for, for everything that you do, um, you know, helping us to get this information out. We'll, you know, hopefully reach somebody new that hasn't heard this story and make a difference somehow. We'll continue to do the best we can. Thank you both so much again, and we will see you again very soon. You've also been very generous with your time. That doesn't go unnoticed. And uh, yeah, let's end on that positive note. Thank you.
Um, Matthew, geez, uh, what do I say every time? What a talk. Uh, and it's true every time. What a talk. Yeah. Yeah. Doing this is great. Uh, we, we get to be educated by all the people who are like doing what's going on in the world right now or who are experts in their field. And, and, uh, that's what, that's the most fun thing about doing this. Uh, e even when, when we're in really, really challenging times, um, you know, hearing what it is that people see that's positive or, you know, finding out a little bit more how the system works. And I'm going to have a couple of questions for, for Warner, uh, afterward, um, mm. cause he said a couple of things that, that, uh, make me wonder what it is that we can do a little bit better. So, yeah, I feel like we picked up some new tools for the toolbox and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to you uh, sharpening some of those uh, with Warner's uh, guidance. Um, so let's, let's wrap it up there. I just want to remind the audience that uh, if you can support rounding the earth, please do. We're doing our best to be an independent, uh, creative, enthusiastic group of researchers, content, content creators, and just generally growing a community that is not brought to you by Pfizer. Um, so a number of ways to do that. You can primarily uh, become a paid subscriber to the Rounding the Earth Substack. If you're a free member, consider upgrading. Um, there's some exclusive content that is so exclusive, I can't even tell you what it is, but it's awesome. Um, you can also, when we're doing these live streams, this is one from last week, there is a section beside the page on Rumble called Rumble Rants, and they are essentially paid comments, sponsored comments, um, that's a great way to support the show. We're also now on Rockfin, where they have a nice, convenient $5 tip button. Um, and uh, thank you to everyone who's watching live on Rockfin right now. We've managed to grow a nice little new audience there already. So thank you again so much for watching. And we will be back again uh, on Friday for our Rounding the News news update. And back again in one week for a wonderful roundtable conversation with, are we, are we able to tell the audience who it is? Uh, Matthias Desmet and Jessica Rose is going to join us for that one. Now that's going to be exciting. And he's got a new book that I look forward to reading once my copy arrives. And um, also last but not least, all the links to find um, both Warner and Brooke will be in the description in, in about an hour after the show ends, but covidlawcast.com warnermendenhall.com and you can follow brooke jackson on twitter at i am brooke jackson let's wrap it up there ladies and gentlemen thank you so much this has been rounding the earth and i hope that you all have a fantastic rest of your tuesday <laughs>